Well, today is week two in our mini-series. Uh, it's week two of Turning the Tables, the reversal of positions that's occurring in this section of Mark. So locate your Bibles. Find Mark chapter 11, and let's dive into the most literal understanding of this phrase this morning, in which Jesus actually turns the tables in the temple, okay? I mean, sometimes it's symbolic or metaphorical, but in this case, he actually does that. That story begins in Mark 11, about verse 15. So let's look at this together, shall we? Mark 11, verse 15. Your Bibles are open. I'll read. You follow with me. Here's what the Scriptures will say to us this morning. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple... And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So here he is in all of his um, manliness, his humanness, his righteous indignation, caring for the Father's his father's temple. And he does that by driving out those who sold and those who bought and overturning the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and even those who were maybe finding a shortcut through the temple. He's like, no shortcuts allowed. We're using this thing in the wrong way. And they had turned this into cultic practices. And as soon as he was done with this, in verse 17, he says that he was teaching them, saying... Is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And so what was intended to be the dwelling place of God among His people became a human um, place for them to abuse people. Let me explain a little bit about what's going on here. And I'll show you some pictures that will give you some visual idea of maybe what's happening. Here's a a picture, first of all, of the area in which Christ would have gone on his ransacking mission against those who are abusing people and his father's house. Now, it's not inside those walls. It's actually on the outside of those walls. You see that women's courtyard there? Well, just on the outside of that is the big area called the Court of the Gentiles. Perhaps the next picture will be a little more clear for you. So do you see in there? This is probably, you could, you could possibly fit about two football fields inside that open area square. The sanctuary, of course, sits in the middle. That's about 150 feet long, maybe 100 feet wide. So you could maybe get two football fields inside that larger area. This is when I was on a tour in Jerusalem a few years ago. This is a scale model of the old city, Herod's Temple. And so we visited that. Uh, here's another picture I can give you some idea. This is just what it would have looked like then. This is Herod's Temple. It's a lot bigger than Solomon's Temple. But it's in the court of the Gentiles where Things were set up so they could sell animals that would be used for sacrifices and where money changes would sit so that those who only had Roman currency could come in and change it out for Jewish currency or vice versa and where they could possibly uh, buy a lamb, maybe buy an ox. In other words, this was a happening place. Maybe uh, the idea of a flea market would be in your mind perhaps or maybe an open air farmer's market. You say, how crowded was it? Well, let me give you some indication. We don't know for sure, but I will say this, that Josephus, one of the historians, said that 
in A.D. 60, and this, that'd be about 30 years beyond where this occurs, but if you just were to project 30 years forward, during the pilgrimage and the Passover at that time, there were about 255,000 lambs that were slaughtered. Now, what if it was just one lamb per family? I'm just, just, I'm just kind of guesstimating here, right? That would mean possibly at least a quarter of a million people in the metro area and in some way trying to make their way to this area to, to make a sacrifice, to pick up a lamb. And so what happened over years was the, uh, the sellers, the money changers, begin to use this as a place to make it convenient for people. Hey, we'll just sell your animal right here. Don't worry about it. We'll just change your money. We'll sell you the animal. We've got everything you need. And so it became really a place for them to make money. Uh, and Jesus said, that's not why the temple was built or erected. For you to profit or, or to make things convenient in the wrong way. Like It's actually supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. In other words, it's not just limited. This is for all people. And so when he sees this happening, and he knows it's happening, he's righteously angered, and he overturns the tables in the area called the Court of the Gentiles where it's hustling and bustling. He overthrows those who are sitting and selling pigeons, the money changers. This is an incredible, what I would say, time-consuming event. In fact, other gospel accounts say that he made a whip. So he knew when he saw it, he had to do something, so he forms a whip by which he's going to drive out those. And think about all the animals that are in this place. This couldn't have been like just an announcement, you know. Attention, everyone. Could you please leave the court of the Gentiles? <laughs> no, this had to be an incredibly, I would say, long task, hard task, and I would say a very manly task. Can you imagine all the animals that are, that are around? How crowded it would be, the smell of it. Try to, in your mind, just try to think of the smells of this area the sights of this area, and the sounds. I mean, if you startle animals that are large, you've got pigeons, perhaps weren't caged, maybe they were, they're, they're flying up perhaps, or there's people grabbing cages trying to run. So you get this, this almost pandemonium, in one sense, in the court of the Gentiles. And Christ is not afraid to exercise his authority in that moment to say, this is not the purpose of the temple. And so he clears them out. I think it probably took hours. Which is why after he did that, I think verse 17 occurs, he teaches them this succinct understanding that it was not meant to be this way. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so this is what's happening in this first text. Um, an incredible event in which Christ kind of goes to bat, we'll call it for his father's house and his father's purposes. Verse 18 says that the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him, and rightly so, because that was their place of manipulation, by the way. Remember, Christ came to be the ultimate sacrifice, which is why on the road to Jerusalem, he went through the gate, through the crowds, and all the way to the temple, the place of sacrifice. He sees it now and he's realizing this is the place of manipulation for the religious rulers because they're extracting money. They're, they're, they're using the law to, uh, to guilt people. This is where they're getting their authority. And he says, this is not right. So they're trying not to kill him, of course. But yet, they feared the crowd, the Bible says, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
When evening came, they went out of the city. So this seems to have taken most of the afternoon, early evening. A large task. Now the question is, why did he do that? To answer that question, let's look at two things on each end of this simple narrative about a fig tree. And let's connect the dots. Let's go back to verse 12, okay? Verse 12 describes his morning walk to Jerusalem just before he's about to take on the the temple abusers and the people manipulators and the system uh, leaders who are uh, using it to kind of get their way and not for God's purposes. He's on his way there, verse 12, when they were on their way from Bethany and he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. So here's a picture of a fig tree. It would have looked something like this, only a little less mature. All right? This is the fig tree, one of the branches, and there's figs on it. He would have seen this from a distance, and he would have seen the leaves, but it had no figs, and here's why. Let's keep reading. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And you read that, you may think, what is going on with that? This tree just didn't have enough time. Why didn't he give it more time? What the text is saying to us is this. It had leaves. We'll go back to that picture for a minute. It had some leaves, but prior to figs, a, a, a tree in this uh, region would actually produce something called a pagim, or maybe it's pagim. I'm not sure how you say the word, okay? But it's a small little, maybe we'll call it a little knob that indicates the tree has life and fruit's about to come. When he approached this tree, he saw nothing but leaves. There were no little tiny pagim, we'll call them, which said to him, oh, it has the appearance of life, but the truth is nothing's going to come from this tree. And so he curses the fig tree, and by that just simply says, you know what, you're full of pretense. You look like you're going to bear fruit, but you're not. You're really dead and full of decay. And so he pronounces a a curse upon it, so to speak, for that reason. And he says, "May may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard this. Notice what Mark says there at the end of verse 14. The disciples heard it. And then he moves right to the temple illustration. Let's go back now to verse 20. Well, let's skip forward to verse 20. They passed by in the morning. Here's the next day now. So they passed the fig tree. He sees this pretentious looking tree that appears to have fruit, but it really doesn't. He then goes and clears the temple, and the next morning, watch this, they see the fig tree withered away to its roots overnight. We're not talking about just a few dark spots. We're talking all the way to the roots overnight. This fig tree, man, that took a turn for the worse, didn't it? And Peter, being the guy to notice the obvious, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Duh. Like Jesus is speaking, right? When he said, let there be light, there was light. And now he says, there'll be no fruit from you. What did we expect? But but I love Peter's attitude. He's amazed. So what's happening here? We just pause at verse 21. Here's what's happening. He's showing in his metaphorical treatment of the fig tree by cursing it and saying, since you're pretentiously appearing to be something you're really not, we'll just go and end it now. He's saying, by the way, this is exactly what the temple has become and what Judaism is. It's pretentious religious systems. You've taken what was intended for good, God's law, 
And you've twisted it and you've turned it and you've used it to manipulate and abuse people. And he, so he's saying when he clears the temple, just like the fig tree's days are over, these days are over. Of the, of the temple and the system that the religious leaders and scribes and Pharisees were using to keep people down and as he said you know, one time, you lay commandments on them that you yourselves aren't willing to do. You strain in a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You're a whitewashed sepulcher. You're full of dead men's bones. You, you say things and preach things, but you never do them. This is who was overseeing and ruling the temple. Men who were not full of God's heart. And so he says, your days are over. Now, the question becomes then, if the fig tree on both ends was, was kind of a pointer, a metaphorical pointer to what he was going to do to the religious system in the temple, why? Why end the temple days? Why say that? Why, just not, why not just go in and correct it? Why not say, hey guys, we're not going to sell these doves and these pigeons and these ox, oxen, the, the lambs. We're not going to do that. Let's see if we can get this. Here's a, here's a policy manual. Here's kind of how we're going to go about it. We need you to kind of do this in the right way. He's bringing this to an end. Why? Precisely because he is the fulfillment of everything the temple was once trying to do. See, the temple was the place for sacrifice. And by the way, the problem here is not the temple in and of itself or even the Old Testament law or God's initial system. That's not the problem. The system of atonement that God set up in the Old Testament through the law and at the temple, through his priest, if enacted correctly, was good each year to help people be atoned under God's wrath and to lead to Christ. But it became corrupted over centuries and was being abused. The problem is the leaders that God entrusted this to. They abused it and used it instead to, to, to beat people and whip people. So God says, you know what? The fulfillment of everything that this has been pointing to is finally here is Jesus. He's going to make the one and final sacrifice in just a few days. And there will be no more need for a temple. Are you with me? There'll be no more need for more sacrifices. And so he's not just coming, understand, he's not coming in an angry position. He's not losing his temper. Some have said that in commentaries about Christ here. He's coming to actually proclaim and declare, we don't need this anymore. Yes, you've corrupted it. Yes, you're abusing it. But guess what? The ultimate Lamb of God is here. We don't need this system. I'm finally, once and for all, going to atone for the sins of mankind. And so your days are over. Just as the fig tree's days were over, the temple's days are over. And now Jesus Christ is the temple. He's the fulfillment of everything God promised. This is the beginning of a lot of this taking, taking shape, and we're seeing it. This is why he would say, tear this temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. Like, that's actually impossible. Herod's temple, which you saw there, is much larger than Solomon's. Herod worked on this temple for decades. And Jesus says, by the way, Tear it down, I'll rebuild it in three days. He's not speaking of the literal structure. He's speaking of his body, which would replace the temple. And so when the New Testament says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and those pronouns are plural, he's speaking of the church. And the church is the body of Christ, right? So Christ is the temple. We are his body. We're the living stones that make up the temple. He's coming in full authority over the temple and in complete fulfillment of everything God said about the temple. This, in every way, this points to Jesus. So there's two observations we want to make here in these first few verses. 
Jesus has divine authority from God. That's why he's uh, on this, what I call a ransacking mission, right? He's not a man out of control. He's not a man losing his temper. He's the son of God, bringing to an end the religious corrupt systems that men developed around a good thing called the law of God. He's bringing to an end their corruption, their manipulation, their leveraging through himself. And he can because he's the one sent from God. So he has divine authority to do this and he's the divine fulfillment from God. The second observation. Just kind of make a, make a mental note of these two things we see in these first two paragraphs. Especially how, they, how the dots connect. The fig tree and the temple. Showing us he has divine authority from God. Yes, over the fig tree, over the temple. Who else could do that, right? So it shows he's got divine authority and he's the divine fulfillment from God. So what happens next is quite intriguing because you may think in your mind, okay, those are two kind of just out-of-the-box things that occur. But notice what he actually does next. Beginning in verse 20, 22, we'll pick it up there. He says, have faith in God. That's one of the few imperatives in this next paragraph. And why would he say that next? Because what were people typically and traditionally having faith in? The temple system. We've got to go there annually. We've got to do these things. We've got to purchase these animals. We've got to make the sacrifice. We've got to prove ourselves to be good. We've got to do certain things. And he's saying, hey, by the way, this is coming to an end, so have faith in God. He's pointing himself to be the avenue by which one has faith in God. And suddenly the, the, the real um, the point is, man, di- directionally, Trust in God. And he's showing himself to be the ultimate final sacrifice. Then he makes some comments that I think have, through the years, been taken way out of context. Especially by those who want to take Christ's authority and then use it for their own benefit. We would call them the prosperity gospel preachers, okay? But they're not just prosperity gospel preachers. There's prosperity gospel people. And so remember, this is coming out of, a, of two incidents in which Christ is exercising his divine authority and showing himself to be the divine fulfillment. And so he says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes, same idea of faith there, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received and It will be yours, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He's simply saying this. This relationship with God is one of faith. It's one of forgiveness. It's one of prayer. It's a a living, vibrant relationship, but it depends upon the authority of God. He's not here saying, oh, by the way, you can get whatever you want now. He's saying you pray and let God do whatever he wants. And whatever he wills. And by the way, we always take the teaching of scriptures and we use other scriptures to compare it and say, okay, how does this work? And we know that throughout the New Testament epistles, we're told to pray in alignment with God's will. That whatever he wills. And so we don't just take these few phrases and pluck them out and say, great, I can ask for anything. I don't doubt I'll get it. That's not the point. I think that really the, the, 
the simplest way to see it is Christ is saying he has the power and the authority to do anything he wills. Amen, right? So when you pray in alignment with his will, be bold and pray in faith. Yes, but God is, is not like suddenly this new ATM for you. That we can get whatever we want because he's got all this authority and so let's use it for our benefit. Then we're no different than the folks who oversaw the temple. They took a system that God instituted for the good of the people and corrupted it, used it to manipulate and get their own way. We're no different if we take prayer and forgiveness and faith and say, good God, it's a long pole that I'll use to get what I want. Are you following me? But by no means is he undermining his authority. He's saying, do you see what I've done to a fig tree? What I've done in the temple? Man, have faith in God. Trust me, this relationship. And then pray. I've got the authority and the power to do anything I will. It's beautiful. What a relationship he calls us into. That's so much better, isn't it, than a ritual that they were into? Trying to crowd into the Gentile court, figure out which animal to buy and make sure it gets slaughtered and, and sacrificed and am I good enough to do the right thing? I mean, it was so, so ritualistic. They were never good enough according to the religious leaders and the temple rulers. But here Christ is calling them to a relationship. One that's rooted in faith, evidenced in prayer, evidenced in forgiveness. It's this vibrant, ongoing, living, you know, nose-to-nose, face-to-face thing that's happening. Not a ritualistic, uh, annual kind of trek or pilgrimage. Those days are over, he says. Here are the days of the, and he would say in a few, in a few days, he would say this, here's the days of the new covenant. And he would shed his blood and give his body for exactly that, the new covenant. In which there's no more annual pilgrimages. There's no more annual sacrifices. There's been one, and it's eternally sufficient. Jesus himself. And so he calls them to faith in God, not in a system or a temple that is now on its last days. It's on life support. I see one more observation from this. Jesus here is saying to them that he's the way to have a divine relationship with God. And by the way, he can do this because don't forget observation one and two. He has divine what? Authority and he's divine fulfillment. And so because he has divine authority and is divine fulfillment, guess what Jesus can do? For every person who believes and has faith in God, he can give them, reconcile them, restore to them a right relationship with God. He can, he can enable that. That's why he would say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And church, hear this with, with really wide open ears. If you extract Jesus from any kind of relationship with God, you have no relationship. Your works, your systems, your rituals, they don't bring you closer to God. They only show you how far away from God you are, and I am. But Jesus, because he has full authority, and because he is complete fulfillment of everything God promised, he brings us into God's presence. So I would say to everyone here, The key to a relationship with God is in a person, Jesus Christ. Not in a system, not in attendance, not in works, 
Not in your name, not in a pedigree or a degree. It's in a person, Jesus Christ, who came and with full authority fulfilled every bit of God's commands. Gave his life as the ultimate Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice. And in so doing, paid the sin debt for all who would believe so that you are no longer in debt. Hallelujah, church. You stand before God free and righteous because of your faith in Jesus and everything he's already done for you. See, that's the response he's looking for in these verses to these disciples. Guys, have faith in God. But the rulers, they don't like that. And so verse 27 kind of concludes the story with a very sad ending, doesn't it? This is now the next day. They're on their way, of course, to Jerusalem again. And he's walking in the temple, which is interesting. I don't know that the whole temple was destroyed. Remember the pictures we saw? He cleared out the court of the Gentiles. Perhaps he cleared a section, maybe all of it. The text doesn't say specifically. It's a large area, a lot of work for one guy. It's a pandemonious kind of situation. But there was some parts of the temple still, I guess, in operation. And he's in that place. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And you can imagine they're hot under the collar, aren't they? I mean, you realize this is just the day after what he did. He, he actually hurt their economy, okay? Hurt their pride, hurt their economy. It's not a good day for those temple people. And so they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? They're pretty ticked off here. You can't come in here and just disrupt our livelihood. You can't come in here and disrupt our system. What are you doing? Who told you could do this? By what authority? And that's a key word here, okay? Because he showed authority over the fig tree. He showed authority of the temple. Now they're wondering, where'd you get this authority? And Jesus, in his great wisdom, this is the fun part of the text here. You'll love this. He says, let me ask you one question. Answer me this, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Can't you hear the Jeopardy music now kind of starting to play in your head? <laughs> da, 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 da. You just, it's coming, isn't it? And so he asked them, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And what he's doing there is he's connecting his ministry, more specifically his authority, to John the Baptist. When he says the baptism of John, he really means the, the entire ministry of John, because that's what John did. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. He was the forerunner of Christ. He said, I'm paving the way. I'm the pointer. It's not about me. It's about the one who's to come. So there's a connection between John the baptizer and Jesus. So he's asking these rulers, hey, where was John's ministry? Where's John's baptism from? Who sourced that? What authority was that under? And so now they're stumped, so they discuss it with each other, verse 31 says. And here's kind of what's happening in their head. We get a picture of it. Can you imagine being in the crowd now? They're kind of huddled up, perhaps. One says, hey, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? Like, he'll, he'll have us there. Like, you know, you should have believed John because John points to me. You would have believed me. Like, you can't say from heaven because then... We're going to be out looking like we're unbelievers. <laughs> but if we say it's from man, like, man, we're going to have a mob riot on our hands because the people held that John really was a prophet. So they're kind of, they're trapped here, aren't they? So what did they do? Watch this. This, this is so sadly amazing. Instead of saying, wow, he really does have authority. He just cornered us in the most loving, compassionate way. We have nothing to say except you are the Christ but instead of saying that, they just find this, this way to kind of say, well, we'll just say we don't know. 
we'll just plead the fifth. We'll just plead dumb. As if their ignorance would stand. But can I say to you, they weren't unable, as in ignorant, they were unwilling. And so when they said, we do not know, Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Isn't that an odd answer? Like, if, if you were Jesus, and if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking, you're right, you don't know. And man, I'm laying into him, right? <laughs> you are too, come on, admit it. You're like taking that soapbox, that platform, and you're letting them have it. What you find here, though, is that Jesus, and this is the hard truth. I want you to just, to, you know, sometimes the gospel truth is like hard candy. You just got to kind of let it sit in your mouth for, for minutes and hours, and you suck on it. You're like, man, that's, a, that's tart. Like, that goes down tough. Jesus here does not disclose himself to people who are unwilling to bow. I didn't say unable. Because you find in the New Testament, scenario after scenario of Christ to people who had not heard of him, who were unable, even physically, who were just crying for mercy, God, have mercy on me. I mean, he was immediately healing them, rescuing them, revealing himself, right? But to religious leaders who knew where his authority really came from. And by the way, they actually knew. They've been stalking him and tracking him. They're angry with him. They want to kill him. They know where he's from. They've seen the miracles. But they're unwilling. And to those who are unwilling, God will not disclose himself. This is, this is a hard candy kind of truth. Wow. Which is why he will later tell his disciples when he sent them out. Now watch this, church. Go into the cities. Preach the gospel. And when someone says, not here, we're not listening, he said, you just brush the dirt off your sandals you go to the next place. Suck on that for a bit, okay? But there's something in this that, that Jesus says, if you're unwilling, if you have a rebellious stance, whew, that's, that's, that's a dangerous, that's dangerous ground to stay on. What should have happened here is they should have seen Jesus in all of his authority, both at the fig tree and at the temple, and then connected the dots to all the miracles. They should have seen his consistent, loving outreach to them. He continued to converse with them, and they should have said, Jesus, you know, your authority is from heaven. You're right. So was John's, and he pointed the way to you, and now you're here, and you're the fulfillment of everything that we've looked at in the Old Testament. We don't need the temple. We need you. You're the key to relationship with, with God. But they didn't. How sad. So these sections all connect, and they show us the authority the fulfillment of Jesus Christ for all of us. And they encourage us, they exhort us not to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to the one who has the authority and is the fulfillment so that we can be rightly related to God. I don't know if you have any questions or not. Um, let's see if any came in. Melinda, you can come in, okay. I didn't think they would. Um, as I thought through the book of Mark, and this, this is probably one of the more imaginative portions of, of the whole gospel in the sense that 
you just have so many scenarios in which your brain can begin to play out the, the situation, can't you? Like the temple, the smells, the sounds, the, the sights, now the fig tree, and then here with the Pharisees, and they're huddling up. I mean, this is just so real, church. And it's one of those places in which we begin to see Mark pointing to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Don't miss him. Isn't this sometimes what we do in our Americanized system of church? We get so wrapped up in rituals, processes, traditions, the ways we do things, the methods that we can, if not, if we're not careful, maybe it's not intentional, but we can almost miss the relationship that's really intended behind it all. Don't miss God's clear call this morning. He's pointing every bit of your attention to the one who has full authority and his final fulfillment and can restore you rightly to God. I would urge you to consider this. If he has full authority, who are we to say no to him? Amen, church? Even beyond that gospel call, when he calls to us and we repent and and, and confess and he saves us. Even beyond that, who are we to consider this authoritative final fulfillment as our consultant? Who do we think we are that we can come to Christ and say, well, let me hear what you think and I'll put it in the hopper and consider it. I'll mix it in with other opinions and if I want to do yours, Jesus, I'll let you know. He's fully God's authority. He's fully God's fulfillment. Everything is pointing to the beautiful, priceless treasure of our Lord and Savior. And so when he speaks, our only answer should be, yes, Lord. Can we put all this in a single sentence? Here's how I would word this. What you may have thought were just some random text, you know, kind of like a, a day in the life of Jesus. He does this, he does that. What's going on with all that? Here's how I connect all the dots for you. That what we see in these first couple of days of Passion Week is that Jesus has divine authority from God and he's the divine fulfillment from God. And so he should be trusted. That's a relationship, right? Not trapped or twisted. That's the old temple system. That's the rituals. And this is something we have to be on guard for in our lives all the time. That we don't move from a relationship to a ritual. That we don't twist and try to trap Jesus for our benefit. We don't try to turn the key so that we get what we want. But instead, we surrender and we take a posture of submission to the one who has full authority and is divine fulfillment. You see, when you look at this sentence, here's, here's what's happening right now in your heart, probably. You're seeing the singular voice of Jesus calling out to you with these words. I've done everything necessary. I've been everything you couldn't be. I've done everything you were supposed to do and couldn't. Here's the singular voice of a loving completely perfect, fulfilling, and authoritative Savior saying, I've already done everything that everyone expects of you. You've got that singular voice, and it's, it's competing against a thousand voices in your head right now of all the things you should have done 
and all the things you should have been and your failures and your regrets and they're screaming at you, you're not good enough. You should have done this. You should be this. There are teenagers in this room. I mean, you feel the pressure of a, of a thousand expectations from coaches, parents, friends, society. Not all those are evil and wicked. Don't hear that. But they lean into us, don't they? There's a lot of voices. You better do this. You should have done that. Oh, man, you dropped the ball there. And sometimes we just kind of add Jesus as another one of those voices. Man, I got all these folks kind of on me, and now Jesus is on me. And we want to run from that. Can I say to you, Jesus is not part of those thousand voices saying what you should have and what you, you could have and how you, he's in the voice that says this one, I've already done it. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's not the voice over your shoulder poking you in the back and kneeing you in the ribs saying, can you straighten up? Could you get your act together? He's the one on the cross saying, I got your act together. I have forgiven your sins. I have full authority to do that. I'm fulfilling everything that, that God has promised. Put your faith and trust in me. He's the preeminent, ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he calls for people to trust him in a relationship, an ongoing environment where we're praying to him we trust him we believe him we lean on his authority not our own we trust his will we accept his forgiveness we extend that forgiveness it's this ongoing day-to-day vibrant living relationship not a ritual or a system of practices that we think makes us right and that's what you have in your head you have this competing voice right now the thousand that say what you should have done and the one that says here's what i've done And I want to call you to listen to the beautiful, preeminent, authoritative, fulfilling voice of Jesus Christ, your Savior. And trust Him. In fact, can I just ask you to hear His voice through the words of the Apostle Paul in this paragraph about Jesus? In fact, I'm going to read part of it, and then I want to have you join me. Would you stand? And let's read this section of Scriptures are closing. This is a beautiful section of scripture about Jesus, his authority, his fulfillment. This points us to Christ so remarkably. So I'll read to the white when it's over. You join me on the yellow and we'll read to the end of this and we'll just lift our voice in praise and and see Jesus in all of his perfection as the singular voice calling us to trust him. Paul would write this, that he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Church, join me. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.